The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. Welcome to the program, everyone. Glad you're here with us as we kick off this Thanksgiving week, which is a kickoff to the whole holiday season. Thanksgiving and all of the holidays between now and Christmas, and then, of course, New Year's. Uh, We've got about, what, six weeks of holiday time that we get an opportunity to enjoy friends and family, and I hope you get that opportunity as well. And I hope you get a chance to stick around with us here. We will uh, be with you on our normal nights, of course. Also, if you can't uh, listen to the live show, you can always download the show as a podcast or watch the replay on YouTube, whatever it happens to be. YouTube, just go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. You'll find the channel. Make sure you subscribe. When you do that, that's very important to us. Otherwise, you can find the podcast on all of the major podcast distribution platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, whatever it happens to be, you'll find it. And uh, that's a great way to listen to the show as well. We've got a very fascinating show for you tonight. We're picking up on our JFK assassination discussion of last week. You know, of course, Friday was the 56th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy still remains very controversial today. And on Thursday, we had a discussion about the fact that uh, there are people who still believe, with good reason, that the uh, lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, theory is the is the accurate one. The Warren Commission had it right, despite some flaws in their work. And uh, that's what we discussed Thursday. Tonight, we're going to take a different approach. We only have an hour to talk about it, though, but we've got James D. Eugenio on the show tonight. He has written several books about the assassination. He is considered to be uh, one of the foremost experts on this discussion, and he's going to offer his thoughts and his theories, and uh, we'll do that in the first hour. The second hour of the show, we'll be talking with Brian Keating. Brian is an astrophysicist and author of a book called Losing the Nobel Prize. We're going to talk about this year's Nobel Prize winners the most recent results in cosmology, and the search for E.T. Brian has done a lot of work in all of those fields. So we're looking forward to some great conversations tonight. Of course, like us on Facebook, Beyond Reality Radio. Like my fan page there as well. It's JVJ Paranormal. We're going to go right to break so we can start our conversation again tonight. Two guests, James Eugenio in the first hour and Brian Keating in the second hour. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Hey, gang, it's JV here. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Beyond Reality Radio. Some of you are new to the program. And some of you have been with us for years. And no matter if you're interested in ghosts, the UFO phenomenon, conspiracy discussions, or any of the other topics we explore on this program, we do it for you. Our goal here is to help find answers to some of the world's most enduring mysteries. And as we continue to bring you interviews and discussions each night, it's important that we get your feedback and, even more importantly, your support. The media landscape is forever changing, and as it does, we need to be able to change with it. That's why it's important for you right now to go to our youtube channel and subscribe once on youtube just search for jv johnson you'll find it there subscribe it's all free and it'll make you part of our global community in addition beyond reality radio is available as a podcast go to your favorite podcast platform and search for beyond reality radio and subscribe there as well And finally, we have an archive program that you may enjoy as well. This show can be found on major podcast platforms, and it's called Beyond Reality Paranormal. By supporting us in one or all of those places, you can be sure we'll be able to continue to deliver quality shows to you, no matter what form the media landscape takes. As a paranormal historian, I promise you the best and most entertaining conversations as we continue to hunt for the truth. Coming up later in the program, Brian Keating will be with us to talk about the Nobel Prize, plus his work in the search for E.T. and intelligent life in the universe. That'll be a very fascinating conversation. But in the first hour of the show tonight, we're picking up on our discussion about the JFK assassination. Of course, Friday marked the 56th anniversary of that event, and that event still haunts many of us today. And it certainly fills the halls of radio stations like the ones you're listening to, plus cable television programs, plus books, plus other sources of pop culture with arguments and discussion and debates about what really happened that day. Well, we're honored to have one of the experts on the uh, whole topic with us tonight. D- James D. Eugenio is an author and a researcher. He's written many books on the topic. 
His website is kennedysandking.com. You should check that out. And uh, James, Jim, great to have you here. Thanks for being on Beyond Reality Radio. Sure. My pleasure. What got you first involved in this whole topic? I mean, many of us have an exposure to it at some point in our lives. We get very, very curious, but only a select few of us actually decide to do something about it and get some answers. What uh, led you on that path? Well, this is an interesting story. I, when I went to film school back in the 80s, um, and uh, I had a friend and a partner at that time, and he said, uh, Jim, why don't you write a screenplay? Okay, and if we can sell it, I'll produce it, you write it, and I'll market it. Okay, and so I said, well, hmm. I have no idea what I want to write about. And then I thought, you know something? Why don't I do something on the Kennedy assassination? Okay. And so I studied the field and I thought, well, you know something? The only way you could make a movie out of this is through the Jim Garrison guy down in New Orleans. And so I did this research, started to write a screenplay. I put it in what they call treatment form, which is a paragraph narrative. Then I checked out Variety magazine one Saturday and I learned that Oliver Stone had optioned Jim Garrison's book and there went my screenplay. All right. And so I decided then to turn that research into a book and that was the first edition of my book Destiny Betrayed which has been thoroughly updated and surpassed and completely rewritten as a second edition of Destiny Betrayed. And that's a book that I'm, I'm very proud of. Uh, and it's because it's so up to date with the new uh, archival releases. And so that's how I got into it. And then uh, I co-edited and published Probe Magazine. Then we did a website, CTKA, and we switched that website to what is now KennedysandKing.com. As you were writing this screenplay, which was uh, inspired, if if not based on, Jim Garrison's work, and of course his book is called On the Trail of the Assassins, uh, and then you learned that Oliver Stone was doing that work, um, how long ago was that, and how much information has has come out or changed or been corrected or discovered since that first edition and now the second edition of that book? Well, if I recall the best of my memory, this was about... 1986, 1987, all right? And I didn't, I had no idea that, because uh, I think Garrison's book was published in 88, okay? And so it was oh, okay. towards the end of the 80s that I went ahead and, and I did the work on that case, and, and then I picked up Variety and I saw Oliver's, Oliver was purchasing the rights to the book, and I said, there's no one going to compete with him. Now, your second question about what has come out since, there's so much that's come out of the archives because of, well, I guess I should tell this, because I don't know if your audience is aware of this. Um, Because of the sensational uproar over Oliver Stone's movie JFK, they passed something called the JFK Assassination Act, which created something called the Assassinations Record Review Board. And that began declassifying over 2 million pages of documents all right, from the National Archives that had been sealed up and spirited away for decades on end. And that board stayed in operation until 1998, and then it still made releases afterwards, what they call timed releases, when they thought, you know, the document would not be dangerous anymore. A lot of those documents dealt with New Orleans and the Garrison investigation, and so I decided I had to update my book. I I would recommend that nobody buy that old edition of the book that came out in, like, I think, 1993 or 94. The new edition, which came out, I think, in 2012, that's the one you want to buy, because that has all the new and current information which the mainstream media has tried to hide from us all these years. 
Tell us what was found uh, and what continues to be found by the Record Review Board and how how um, earth-shattering in, in regards to this discussion is the information. Well, in my opinion, it's, it's, it's very, very, very important, crucial, and it does change the whole complexion of the Kennedy case. All right, the review board not, did not just declassify documents. It also did its own certain investigations, uh, mostly pertaining to the medical evidence in the JFK case. And I think that has been very, very important. For example, to give you just one example, the House Select Committee on Assassinations was the last federal investigation of the JFK case. They closed up in 1979. They wrote a report saying that although certain doctors in Dallas said they saw a blown-out back of Kennedy's skull, the witnesses at Bethesda, the morgue where JFK was taken to the night of his death, did not see this blown-out back of the skull, and therefore the people in Parkland Hospital emergency room were wrong. Well, lo and behold, when the ARB declassifies those documents, this turned out to be a false statement because just as many people at Bethesda saw this blown out back of the skull as did at Parkland. And so the number is now up to 41 witnesses. Now, I shouldn't have to explain to your listeners who I think are sophisticated enough to know that a blown-out back of the skull would usually signify that the entrance room was from the front. Right. Okay? Because exit wounds are almost always larger than entrance wounds. Okay? Another very important revelation is the fact that there was an extra bullet found at Bethesda that night. And as you know, the Warren Commission was limited to three bullets because only three shells were found at the sixth-floor school book depository. Well, now we have another bullet. All right? Okay, now I can go on and on like this. Okay? Yeah, because yeah, right. that's how... <laughs> and you probably want me to, right? Well, I, <laughs> I, I do. I mean, this is all fascinating to me. And, um, you know, you've got your finger on the pulse of this stuff. Let's talk about the bullet for just a second. Um, did the Warren yes. Commission, wouldn't the Warren Commission have been relieved if they had been able to identify a fourth bullet? Oh, no. I mean, they no. explain the I'm magic. Sure, I'm sure you, you know the case well enough to know that there were only three shells found yeah, on the sixth yeah. floor. Oh, no, I know that, but, and okay. I, but I also know, you know the, the, the lengths they went to to explain all the wounds with only three bullets. It almost seems as though that would have been a little easier for them if they could have in some way determined there was a fourth bullet. But no, I'm wrong on that? But that would have meant there was a conspiracy. Okay. Fair enough, yeah. All right, and that's the last thing J. Edgar Hoover, who was essentially the main investigative arm of the Warren Commission, he didn't want to go there, and neither did the Warren Commission. That's why Arlen Specter went ahead and did that whole crazy single bullet theory nuttiness, you know, which is another thing that has been destroyed by the new uh, declassified documents on this case. Okay, so and we can get into that also if you want. All right. So, no, I don't agree with that. I, I think the Warren Commission and the FBI, and when I say major, the FBI did about 80% of the investigation for the Warren Commission. The Secret Service, State Department, and CIA did the last 20%. So J. Edgar Hoover was the, for all intents and purposes, he was the main investigator for the Warren Commission. And both he and they... Uh, stuck to this three-bullet scenario because there were only three shells. Anything more than three bullets would mean there was another assassin. They, and that's one place that they never really wanted to go to. That makes sense. We've got, yeah. about, we've got about three minutes before we have to go to our first break. So as this information's coming out, um, and it seems as though at least of what you've described here, uh, the case against the Warren Commission's finding just gets stronger. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's 
kind of overwhelming now. I mean, the Warren Commission, I believe, today has been exposed uh, as nothing but pablum that was supposed to soothe over uh, what really happened to this country in 1963, which I believe, and many other people believe, was nothing less than a coup. Okay, the, the violent overthrow of the government in order to enact certain new policies, which were certainly enacted after JFK was killed. Yeah. All right, so yes, that, 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 that's what I believe that the Warren Commission was. It was kind of, uh, you know, take a couple aspirins, go to bed, <laughs> you know, call your doctor in the morning. <laughs> that's, that's what the Warren Commission was all about. Yeah. They- I mean, those guys... They should be ashamed of themselves. Were they just were they just lazy? Were they incompetent or were they complicit? I think that there were certain people on the Warren Commission who didn't give a damn. Okay, and, and were like Alan Dulles and Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford, I don't know if you know this, but when he was president, he was talking to Giscard d'Estaing, the premier of France. And he asked him, the French premier asked him, what were you doing with that Warren Commission thing? And Ford admitted that we understood that there was an organization behind the killing of Kennedy, but we just couldn't find out what it was. Ford said that. All right, so yeah, I, I think that's a statement of complicity. Wow. Um, yeah, I would say that certainly is. So in the minute we've got before we have to go to break here, uh, edition two of Destiny Betrayed is out now, right? It's available now. Yeah, it's been out for a while, yeah. Been out for a while. Um, has anything come out since, document-wise, information-wise, that's going to force you to go to Edition 3 at some point? God, I sure hope not. <laughs> I'm a little bit tired of, of, of writing books right now. <laughs> okay. So well, uh, anything oh, anything since 2012, is that what you're asking me? Yeah, is, yeah basically, yeah. Yeah, that's that's essentially when, when, when the book was published. Um off the top of my head, uh, anything major? No, I can't think of anything. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Well, maybe, maybe there is. Okay. It's almost for certain now that Oswald did not go to Mexico City. In these very recent documents, uh, it's very, very difficult to make the case that Oswald was there. Every, I think most of your listeners know the Warren Commission said that in late September, early October, Oswald left New Orleans separately from his wife, Marina. She went back to Dallas, and Oswald was supposed to have taken this trip uh, down to Mexico City, visiting the Cuban and Russian consulates, uh, trying to get out of the country, and then returning to Dallas when he failed. And the Warren Commission made a lot of this in order to portray... Oswald as being a communist, all right, uh, a defector who was trying to re-defect. Well, it turns out that as time has gone on, it's it's become more and more and more difficult to actually come up with any tangible evidence that Oswald was really in Mexico City. Some of these newer files that have come out, for example, say that. When Langley, that is CIHQ in Washington, D.C., released the announcement that Oswald was in Mexico City, the, the CIA station down there, these people started to go batty trying to find any evidence Oswald was there. And they couldn't come up with anything. They did everything. They 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 checked the they couldn't find how he had come down, you know, by either car or bus, and so they checked the airports. They checked the airports if he came in by air. They gave pictures to agents that they had in as spies inside the Cuban consulate. And they said, Did you see this guy here? He was supposed to have been here. And the agents they had inside the consulate said, no, we didn't see him. They went back a week later, almost begging them to say yes. And they said, again, no, we didn't see that guy. They had the Soviet consulate, the Soviet embassy, wiretapped. On the, on the wiretap translations, the day after the assassination, 
There is not one mention of Lee Harvey Oswald being at that Soviet consulate. Okay? Wow. And so what the what the Warren Commission when the Warren Commission went down there, they essentially were stonewalled. The uh the CIA turned over the investigation of Oswald in Mexico City to a guy named Echeverria and his assistant, Mr. Ochoa, in the, in the sec, as the Secretary of Interior. And what they did was a massive cover-up. They faked records. They faked signatures. They intimidated witnesses to put together a phony evidence trail that Oswald had been there. And here's the icing on the cake. J. Edgar Hoover knew this. In the marginalia of a memorandum, about seven weeks after the assassination, he wrote, because this caused a big split between the FBI and CIA. And Hoover wrote, and he said, I can't forget that phony story that the CIA gave us about Oswald being in Mexico City. In other words, when the FBI finally did get on the case down in Mexico City, they discovered what had really happened. And this put Hoover in a box. He does not want to go ahead and expose what really happened, because that will expose the conspiracy. Right. All right? And, but on the other hand, the other way he can go is simply accept it and lie his head off, which is what he decided to do. It was a Hobson's choice. He decided to do the uh, the coward's way out. All right. Since we're limited on time tonight, I want to. There's a couple of key things I want to get to, and one of the one of them is you mentioned uh, when you heard that Oliver Stone had optioned Jim Garrison's book. It kind of turned the course of your uh, research and, and your objectives a little bit. But then at uh, some point along the way. You and Oliver Stone developed a, a, a partnership and a working relationship. Tell us how that happened. Oh, this is... <laughs> okay, this... Uh, I, I, you're referring to that documentary we're working on. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, what happened was that uh, through some mutual friends, um, Oliver and myself met, okay, uh, and... Um, he really liked the fact that I had stuck up for him, you know, uh, and voiced some disapproval of his critics, and I was very specific about what they were wrong about. All right, since none of these guys on the other side do any research, right. any real research into the Kennedy case. And so he appreciated that fact. And so he he asked me to be the writer on this documentary that he's directing, and his friend and and uh, working partner Rob Wilson is producing. All right, and it's partly based on my book. Okay, it's really based on both my books. If you want to take a look at that that way, it's uh, the opening and closing segment is based on JFK, Destiny Betrayed. The middle part of the film is really based on JFK, The Evidence Today, which is my latest book. But Oliver likes looking at the big picture. You know, what really happened to America as a result of Kennedy's death? And so that's why he liked that title, JFK, Destiny Betrayed. And so we've been working on that now, oh my God, since March of this year. I submitted the first draft of the script, and I'm now on the sixth draft, and we've been editing it as we've been going along. And, uh, and it's coming along pretty nicely, I think. Okay, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty soon. I think we have to have it done in March, all right? And I think we'll make that deadline. It's a three-part program. All right, on the J, and it basically focuses on the new documents that the mainstream media doesn't want to talk about for good reason. What's going on in the mainstream media that they have a dog in this hunt? Why? Well, I thought it was kind of interesting. If you recall, 
uh, back in 2017, President Trump made that famous tweet in which he said words of the effect, I'm looking forward to declassifying the final papers that were classified as a result of the JFK Act. Mm -hmm. Because in the JFK Act, they said 25 years after, uh, excuse me, I'm wrong, 20 years after they closed their doors, you couldn't withhold any more documents anymore. All right? And what happened? Well, uh, Trump got visited by the FBI and the CIA on the very last day that they could make their case. Mm -hmm. And they made their case, and Trump gave up. He said that he wasn't going to declassify everything and that he would set up some kind of board to hear the cases for declassification. And that board would go out of uh, existence in 2021. In other words, he was leaving it up to the next president. But let me tell you this, okay? This is all, in my opinion, nothing but a diversion for the real truth. Because there's many, many, many more documents than the administration has accounted for that are still in heavily redacted form. Should I explain that to your audience? Yeah, please give him what that means. Yep. Okay. Heavily redacted means that the government blacks out certain parts of the document, okay, before they'll let it go to the public. All right. Which means, of course, it's very difficult to make sense of what the document is saying and also what it's about. Well, there's still many, many more documents than the 514 that they're saying that are still in very bad shape and are largely indecipherable. Okay? And there's a lot of documents that have simply not been accounted for. You know? So I believe that that's a whitewash, the figure that they're giving out right now. See, once the review board went out of existence, there really wasn't any enforcement agency to go ahead and make sure that all these documents that they had not finished with uh, were going to be declassified in their least redacted form. All right? And see, let me explain what, what that means. I'm sure all your listeners know what the Freedom of Information Act is. Sure. It's the way that civilians petition the government to get certain secrets out of the government that they know in order to write something or broadcast something. Now, if you want to do that, you have to go to court and file a lawsuit, all right, and either represent yourself or you get a lawyer to represent you, all right? And in that case, the FBI or the CIA or State Department is the defendant, you're the plaintiff, okay? And you have to prove to the best of your ability why such a document should be declassified. Well, what the review board did is it turned the tables on that scenario. With them, the FBI, the CIA, State Department, they had to prove why a document should not be declassified. In other words, the burden of proof was shifted. All right? And so that's what made that such a powerful engine of declassification. Nothing like that had ever been attempted before. And nothing like that has ever been attempted since. And I believe it was an effective way to get a lot of what we needed to know about this case out there. And another thing it did, it showed just how weak the Freedom of Information Act was. I mean, those over 2 million documents, pages of documents, that the review board got released in some form, wouldn't, that would have never happened without them. It's really a disgrace, if you ask me. You know, because the obvious question is, you know, if you don't really know what the heck happened, you know, in the past, how can you make intelligent decisions or observations about the way we live today? You know, so I believe that 
that that that's a very serious problem that more and more people should be made aware of. Is it going to take another big pop cultural move to force some of this to happen? JFK, the film, was a very uh, probably the most important force in this. I would say this culture to force people to take notice, pay attention, and maybe apply pro- political pressure on those who can make some of these decisions. Is it going to take another another uh, force like that to get this done? How about this one? How about a new movie called RFK? Yeah. I mean, have you ever talked about that case on the air? We just very little. We we did have a, a conversation, but we didn't get into it in a lot of detail. That's more, even more obviously a conspiracy than the JFK case is. Do you know that much? Uh, yeah, I mean, I know the basics. You know, again, we have this one has been talked about a lot more on this program than RFK, and it's probably something we need to do soon. Yeah, well, the R- <laughs> I mean, that's the way I feel. I think the RFK case is just too much overshadowed, you know, yeah. by the JFK case. But what I mean by that is this, that... As most people don't understand, it's true that Sirhan Sirhan was in front of Bobby Kennedy. It's true that his arm was raised parallel to the ground, Mm -hmm. and he was firing in the direction of Senator Kennedy. What almost nobody knows is that every bullet that entered Bobby Kennedy's body entered from behind. Mm. It entered at extreme upward angles not parallel to the ground, and at a range of one to three inches, whereas almost all the witnesses said Sirhan was about three feet in front of Kennedy. So in other words, whatever projectiles that Sirhan was shooting, they did not cause a death of Bobby Kennedy. Something else did. Right? And that was all covered up. You know, so maybe if, if uh, we get a film... <laughs> about that, that'll create the same kind of gale force, you know, that, you know, this country needs to yeah. really go ahead and reconsider. Hey, did somebody really tamper with history? Did somebody really deliberately wipe out the 60s? You know, that great, wonderful decade that right. I don't know how old you are, but I was old enough to live through it, you know. Um, we only have a few minutes left with you. I want to ask you about Tom Hanks work. I know that, um, are you trying to make me sick? (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I want to, I want to hear your thoughts on it. Oh God, please. Tom Tom (laughs) Hanks, I did a lot of work on Tom Hanks. All right. Tom Hanks and his buddy, Steven Spielberg, I discovered, uh, this is in my book, JFK, the evidence today had always felt like they were outsiders. And I go into the reasons why that is, okay, in in, in my book. And so once they hit it big, they decided to join the establishment, which was the Democratic Party, Clinton-Obama Democratic Party at that time. And if you take a look at what Hanks has done, in his celebration of America's supposed victory in World War II. And why I say it's supposed, it's because <laughs> you probably know this, I don't know if you live it. Really, the Nazis, the Blitzkrieg, was not stopped by the United States and Britain. The Blitzkrieg, the great Nazi war machine, was stopped by the Russians and the Russian winner. That's what stopped Hitler. Right. Okay? So that's one thing that I think that he depicts that is inadequate. Then that stupid movie, Parkland. Oh, my God, I almost threw up, (laughs) you know, trying to make us believe that Lee Harvey Oswald shot Kennedy by himself. And then that movie, The Post, that him and Spielberg did. Wow. I mean, this is what one guy told me. Trying to make a movie about the Pentagon Papers to the Washington Post would be like trying to make a movie about Watergate to the New York Times. You know, it, <laughs> right, it, it right. simply is, did not compute. Right. Because the, the Pentagon Papers were only in the hands of the Washington Post for two weeks, whereas the New York Times had them for three months. 
You know, yep. and, and that's what the real struggle was about. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for being here. If you haven't found our YouTube channel yet, it's a great resource for you because we stream live there if you don't have a radio station in your market. Plus, there's an archive of back episodes, about 400 or more, at uh, at the YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. You'll find it. Please subscribe when you get there. Um, we were going to... Uh, spend the whole second hour talking with Brian Keating and we're going to bring him in in just a few minutes but we got uh James DiEugenio to stay with us a little bit longer because we want to have a little further conversation about uh the topic in the first hour which is the JFK assassination Jim you were talking about Tom Hanks I had to kind of cut you short there um is he just is does he have an agenda or is is he just misguided as a historian Well Tom Hanks never graduated from college Okay, he got off into acting. He quit college, all right, and he greatly admired that old TV, which I might still be on that world that uh, worldwide distributed show called Biography. Oh, sure, yeah, all right. And he thought that was just the uppermost reaches of television, all right. And so he admired that kind of middle brow approach to history and that's what he's tried to do you know he essentially accepts most of the cliches and falsities of the mainstream media and he essentially puts that into his films you know now does he really believe that that's a question i have to ask him but that's certainly what what comes across in in his filmmaking you know uh, I think it's really a shame myself, you know, that people that rich and powerful can't bring themselves to, you know, do a little bit of study and homework and educate themselves on these issues before they go ahead and produce films on them. It would be a little helpful if they would do that, right? Tell us, um, yeah. tell us a little bit about uh, what a lot of people may regard as the, well, maybe what opened the door to some to some of this conversation, just because it created a debate, and that would be Vincent Bugliosi's book, Reclaiming History. He claims to have been the authority on this, uh, and and wrote that book about the, the JFK assassination. What's wrong with it? Uh, there isn't very much right with it. Let's put it that way. 2,646 pages. It's an argument by length, you know, and by insult. Hmm. Bugliosi indulges himself in both. He tries to overpower you with pages, you know, and people who don't know the case... Might be, well, it's such a big book, it must be the truth. You know, no, it's not. Just like, you know, the Titanic was not the greatest ship that ever, you know, sailed. You know, Bugliosi's book isn't the best book on the JFK case, you know. And so it's essentially a recycling of the Warren Commission, except even wordier than the Warren Commission. (laughs) You know, and I, unfortunately, read the whole thing, you know. And he accepts the single bullet theory, which I think is pretty much insupportable today. He accepts the uh, the revision of JFK's autopsy, which was the Clark panel in 1968, which raised the wound in the back of Kennedy's skull four inches mm-hmm. from low at the bottom to high in the skull, something that's almost unheard of in the real world. And... Tippett was killed by Oswald, Kennedy was killed by Oswald, and Ruby shot Oswald by himself. You know, and so it's all that dressed up in a lot of verbiage. My book, JFK, The Evidence Today, is largely a reply to his book. You know, there's, it's impossible to review a book that long with an essay. And I thought most of the reviews of his book were simply false and almost humorous. You know, so I decided to go ahead and read the whole thing, all right? And I did a long analysis of it. It's the only way I think you can approach it, honestly. You've got uh, the books we've been talking about. If someone was new to your work and new to these ideas, which of the books would you recommend they start with of yours? JFK, The Evidence Today. That's basically an analysis of what the review board uh declassified and how it impacts the evidence 
in the JFK field today. You know, that, and that, that's essentially why I wrote it, to show how much Bugliosi had left out, how much important information he had left out of his giant book. You know, so that gives you an overall view of just how badly the Warren Commission screwed up the evidence. And then Destiny Betrayed is really about Kennedy and Jim Garrison. Uh, Jim Garrison's efforts to try and figure out why Kennedy was killed, and also how. Do you think? Do you think yeah, Garrison and, is a hero or a villain? Oh, Jim Garrison was, by all definitions, a hero. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the guy threw away a, a brilliant career that he could have had mm-hmm. on the JFK case. Anybody else's work that uh, you? Appreciate enough to recommend as reading? Yes. Um, there, there's, there's several offers that uh, I kind of like in the field. You know, there's uh, some classic books, like Sylvia Marr's book, Accessories After the Fact. That's a very interesting and, and good book. Uh, even to this day, I would recommend it. And there's John Newman's book, Oswald and the CIA, that's a very good book on the declassified documents about Lee Harvey Oswald. And Gayton Fonzie's book, uh, The Last Investigation, on Richard Case Nagel. And Jim Douglas's book, JFK and the Unspeakable. Those are some of the books that I admire. That's really about Kennedy, JFK and the Unspeakable. It's two-thirds about Kennedy, about one-third about the assassination. Where can people get a hold of your work, your books? Well, probably Amazon. And then my website is kennedysandking.com. And we have new stories up there. You know, uh, we rotate them out by once a month. And you can read the most current uh, research and news on the JFK case there. Jim, thanks so much for being here tonight. I'm sorry it's uh, it's shorter than we'd like, um, but we'll have to have you back in another time. Sure. Thank you so much. Tonight, we've got two fantastic guests. So the second guest of the night is Brian Keating. Brian is a professor of physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences in the Department of Physics at the University of California, San Diego, where he leads the ACT Center for Experimental Cosmology. He's also associate director of the Arthur Clark Center for Human Imagination. Brian, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you back. Yeah, it's great to be back with you. So tonight, um, in our somewhat abbreviated discussion, because we have uh, less than an hour with you, sadly, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Nobel Prize, and then we're going to get updated as to what's been going on with you in the search for extraterrestrial life. But let's talk Nobel Prize, because we're quickly approaching uh, Nobel Prize week, right? Yeah, yeah. I say there's two holidays in the Nobel calendar, and that's the Feast of the Annunciation, which takes place in October when they announce who's been selected to be elevated to the pantheon gods and somewhat rarely goddesses in the Nobel Prize sphere. And then October, uh, December 10th every year is the anniversary, not of Alfred Nobel's birth, but of his death. And that's when the awards are given out each year. What's the origin? I mean, most of us have a kind of an idea of how it started, but give us the quick version of the origin of the Nobel Prize. So Alfred Nobel was one of the richest inventors and men in the uh, 19th century. He lived mostly in Northern Europe, Scandinavia, Russia, and uh, Sweden. And he invented the uh, product we call dynamite, although originally he called it Nobel's safety powder uh, because he wanted to uh, take advantage of marketing, early marketing studies at the time, which showed that people were scared of, of things that exploded. And he ended up making a safer version of previous explosives like nitroglycerin that could be used for construction and perhaps that could rehabilitate the Nobel name uh, for what they had been for decades, which were a family of arms dealers, essentially, in Europe selling uh, to the highest bidder. So upon his death, he wanted to endow a prize which would kind of reverse the effects of what he had done. And he had no children. He had no wife. Uh, and he was interested in kind of agitating for peace and for the benefit of mankind rather than for destructive purposes. So he left all, most of his wealth 
to the prize that bears his name and is given out every year in early December. And what's the what does the Nobel Prize recognize generally? Well, it has a mission statement which keeps getting slightly tweaked year by year by the Nobel Committee, which is charged with the stewardship of the vast Nobel fortune. And that uh, mission statement is to benefit mankind. Uh, and that benefit can come in many different ways. It could be as the first Nobel Prize in 1901, physics was given for the X-ray machine. Effectively, the machine that allows us to peer into our bodies safely and diagnose problems, and that was awarded in 1901. Uh, and since then, it has more from a pure technology prize or a prize recognizing sort of practical inventions, the kind of which Alfred Nobel would be familiar with. He invented 356 different patents during his lifetime in the 1800s. And so he was very keenly fixated on inventions, but I think in the prize has morphed into something that's much more esoteric and awards things that he could scarcely have ever dreamed of, such as the Higgs boson, dark energy, and uh, cosmic microwave background radiation, things that would have been uh, seemingly magic if he would ever be aware of them. And as we approach this date, obviously the um, announcement has already been made, so we know who's going to receive the prize. Who uh, who do we have uh, going to be honored this year? This year there are two different... Uh, so the Nobel Prize could be divided into a maximum of three persons, although Alfred, again, only decreed that only one person could win it. The Nobel Committee decided they would change that slightly. Uh, and among other things, they changed the stipulation that the prize be awarded for the discovery made in the preceding year. And in this case, uh, the discovery it wasn't really kind of a, a specific discovery. Half the prize went to the uh, man at uh, Princeton University, Jim Peebles, who's a friend of mine, who has made great contributions to the study of cosmology, theoretical cosmology. And uh, those those findings have been borne out over several decades. And uh, the other half of the prize, so he won half of the physics prize, and the other half of the $1 million prize, roughly, goes to two optical astronomers uh, who discovered the properties of what are called exoplanets. So these are planets around other stars that tug gravitationally on their host star, and can be detectable by the simple Doppler effect that you probably witness when you hear a, a siren on an ambulance or police car coming towards you, getting higher in frequency or pitch, and then uh, lowering in pitch as it goes away from you. And these these phenomena, these astronomers discovered that this could be applied to the study of light surrounding stars and planets in distant parts of our galaxy. And indeed, they discovered the first extrasolar planets back in 1994 or so. So then the uh, these are really pertinent to your work, obviously, and uh, a lot of the things we discuss on this program. Um, this this is really a good year for those of us who are, who are in search of uh, of some kind of signals or signs from uh, of extraterrestrial and intelligent life from outer space. Yeah, certainly that the the tools that these astronomers uh, provided to us in the latter case gave uh, indications that. And perhaps the great majority of stars in our galaxy have planets that they host. And these planets, in some cases, have been imaged and are studied, rather, and that's, the study has revealed that they have properties, in, in many cases, that are very Earth-like. And these planets have been followed up in subsequent studies by the Kepler satellite, which we only recently turned off, and seems to indicate that there might be, you know, tens and tens of millions of planets in our galaxy alone. Now, just having a planet that's, you know, rich for life doesn't necessarily imply that there'll be a species of technology-enabled creatures like right. ourselves, but it certainly is better than the converse, which would be that there are no other planets in the, in the universe that could potentially be similar to the Earth. And, the properties in which the Earth has are very special, and we can get into those. Um, but these astronomers really opened this this new uh, vista into the hope, the search that you could find other worlds that potentially could be habitable. We have about a minute before we have to go to break here. Is it more likely that uh, we d uh, f discover in some fashion or another a planet that sustains some type of life that might be microbial? 
uh, or single-celled uh, versus some kind of advanced technology? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you if you think about how many hurdles the civilization, you know, of, of hominids even would have to get to to produce something like the means of technology that we're communicating to you know, millions of listeners around the world potentially, that type of, of technology, it's more than just the opposable thumbs and the prefrontal cortex. It's it's even the development of language. It's even the development of, of you know, other forms of animal life that, that uh, came and went at just the right time. And if you look at all the different probabilities that, you know, life could kind of be exterminated or extinguished prematurely before we reach the technological maturity level that we've reached, it just seems astronomical, no pun intended, that we exist, and that makes our existence very precious indeed. That doesn't mean there aren't other uh, life forms out there, but certainly the simpler, the more plentiful, as you say. Brian, I wanted to go back to this idea of uh, finding other life in the universe in our galaxy and uh, we posed the question would it be more likely that we'd find some kind of intelligent life or maybe some uh, some kind of single-celled microorganism type life and i think it's probably safe to assume the single-celled or the simpler life form would be the more common one however wouldn't it be helpful to us in this search if an intelligent life form was looking for us as much as we were looking for them. I mean, isn't it more likely that we might get some kind of signal from an intelligent life form versus uh, stumbling upon um, a, a single-celled type life form? Yeah, so uh, that's absolutely correct. And, and I think there are, you know, a couple different approaches to this. You know, the main one being there are so many planets out there. And as one of the novelists who we just mentioned before the break said, you know, he can't imagine that that we're alone in the universe. But, you know, just not being able to imagine something doesn't mean that it's forced to exist. So his guess is sort of as good as yours, your listeners. And, you know, I, I think for us to speculate on whether or not life exists and it's like ours and if it's communicating uh, how we'd be able to uh, notice such communication, I think, well, that would be a tremendous breakthrough. But, you know, there's no guarantee that they would actually use the same means of communication that we do. For example, we've gone through, you know, 20 different types of communication in the last 200 years, just taking the last few, you know, major ones, you know, not skipping the telegraph, et cetera, but just going up to, you know, radio and television broadcasts. Now, that was where we were spraying out radiation to all directions uniformly and, and if you, uh, if you recall the movie Contact, where the first transmission, you know, from the 1936 Olympics is now reaching a star that's 70 light years away, that's by virtue of the fact that all these transmissions travel at the speed of light, but they only do so in a uniform way if they're not being, you know, focused or conducted along an Ethernet cable or along a fiber optic cable. So we've gone from, you know, broadcasting over radio towers to now you and I being connected to fiber optics that no civilization outside of Earth could ever possibly detect because it's confined to the Earth's surface or underneath the ocean or something like that. So just in, our, in the span of 10 or 20 years, we've drastically reduced our electromagnetic footprint in the, in the galaxy. And so it makes it even harder for us to find. So it just points out how difficult it would be. It would mean that a civilization would have to look at for us during this very brief window of time when we are rather careless and profligate with our electromagnetic footprint. And so to think that other advanced civilizations far more advanced than us wouldn't do the exact same thing or figure out a way to do it even better um, is, is, you know, in my mind, maybe a little bit too oversimplified. So I think the chances are pretty slim, although... I have many colleagues, including Jill Tarter, you know, the subject, uh, the fictional subject of the movie Contact, uh, Ellie Arroway, uh, is based on her care, on her real life. Um, and uh, she's a friend of mine, and she makes the analogy that we've only looked at equivalent, the equivalent of like a coffee mug out of the Pacific Ocean in terms of how much of the parameter space we've actually looked at. So one hand, the prospects are really bleak. You know, where are they? Where is everybody? If, if their life is teeming throughout the universe. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, we've maybe only scratched the surface. So I can hear arguments for both. Some speculate that it's better that we don't make contact, because if <laughs> we were to make contact, we might be putting a big uh, target on our back. What do you think? Yeah, so Stephen Hawking, you know, famously mentioned how future uh, past civilizations fared so poorly when they encountered, you know, European 
um, you know, imperialist, colonialist powers. Maybe that's true. Some, uh, and I agree with this, have really advocated that something that's so hyper-advanced that, you know, there's really nothing that we could provide to a civilization that's a million years ahead of us that's managed to not blow itself up and end its brief existence. If such civilizations exist, they're not going to want to eat us. They're not going to want to study us and confine us to cages. We have no, you know, lock on resources. I mean, there's more gold and platinum floating around the asteroid belt than is, you know, available here. I think it's very uh, limited, and I think, you know, hopefully uh, that would not be the case. <laughs> We'd be dinner for an alien. So what work have you been doing in regards to this? Tell us a little bit about some of your latest efforts. So right now, the astronomical community every decade gets together and puts together a list of proposals, sort of a wish list, sort of a Christmas shopping list, if you will, for what kinds of telescopes, satellites, space missions, underground laboratories that we'd like to build in the coming decade in order to understand the universe at all different wavelengths and all different energy scales and all different ways of looking at the universe. And I'm involved with one of those called the Simons Observatory, which is proposed to uh, and is actually funded already, uh, but we're also seeking additional funding from the federal government. It's currently privately funded. And this an instrument is going to be built in the high mountains of, of northern Chile in the Andes, and we actually broke ground in a ceremony this past uh, July, which is winter down there. And we're looking at enhancing this observatory, and also our colleagues and somewhat you know, competitive groups are trying to do the same thing, and that's to understand not what happened a few minutes after the Big Bang, as Professor Jim Peebles just recently won the Nobel Prize for, but what happened in the first trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang or after the origin of the universe. So these are missions that we're trying to understand the universe through different wavelengths in the light, uh, than light that our eyes are sensitive to. So it's a very exciting time, and we, the prospects are very, very good for the next decade that these discoveries we're going to make about the origins of the universe itself and the composition of the universe as well, those are going to come into dramatically sharpened focus as colleagues and, and, and myself and others build new instruments and new technologies. And there's so many really exciting proposed projects. You know, you only wish, like uh, Santa Claus, you'd get everything you wish for. <laughs> um, as we get closer to getting some of these answers, can are we ever going to ultimately be able to definitively determine if there was a Big Bang, if the Big Bang is, is what we're talking about here, how this concept of nothing before everything is, is almost impossible to comprehend. Are we ever going to be able to get our, our, our minds around this? Believe me, you're not the only person that has trouble with these types of, of concepts. In fact, my colleagues that are working at the, at, at the borders or the frontiers of modern physics grapple with the same question that you just asked. Namely, you know, how can a universe emerge from nothing? Are there possibilities for parallel universes? either in space, you know, separated by dimensionality of space or separated by distance from our observable universe. Those are types of entities called multiverses. Well, there's another type of multiversity, well, taking a longer viewpoint, the space-like, the time-like viewpoint, thinking of universes collapsing and then expanding and collapsing and expanding over perhaps trillions of, of years of cosmic evolution. And those types of models of the universe have a lot of attraction because, in some sense, they remove this singular nothingness beginning that you spoke about. And these are, you know, very, very highly supported by some of the most brilliant minds in cosmology, including folks like Sir Roger Penrose and others. And uh, the exciting thing as an experimental astrophysicist, as I described in my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, this uh, pursuit of trying to not prove theories right, is not what we do as, observ as observers or experimentalists. What we try to do is prove everything else wrong, and then what we're left with should be closest representative of the truth. And so we are going to potentially narrow it down in a way that we could either rule out the existence of a preceding universe to our own, or... Perhaps we could find some evidence in, in, contra in contrast that our universe is actually part of a vast network of universes called the multiverse. And so I feel like we're in a win-win situation either way. We're either going to discover 
universes that potentially existed before ours, or we're going to discover that our universe could be accompanied by other universes currently in, in some abstract sense throughout all of space. Help me with that concept a little bit, because as you probably know, we get uh, a lot of guests on this program that talk about interdimensional travel and this whole concept of parallel universes and parallel dimensions. If, in fact, that's the way science takes us and we start to see more evidence of that, is it a spiritual connection? What's the connection between multi-universes or multi-dimensions? Well, so I've done, uh, I did a video um, uh, called What's a Greater Leap of Faith, God or the Multiverse? Mm-hmm. In which I don't really advocate either way, you know, is the multiverse, uh, you know, a religion? Is God, you know, scientific? Uh, yeah, I have feelings about that. I don't think that's the essence of the question right now. I just point out the similarities between faith and a theory, which for which we currently don't have observational evidence and data and hard facts that support, namely in the multiverse. And the type of multiverse that we're speaking about is not one of interdimensional travel, et cetera, et cetera. It's more akin to, well, you know, right now, if you lived on, on one side of the planet, you could infer the existence of the rest of the planet, say the ocean and Antarctica, uh, from uh, from a tsunami or some event that carries information via waves around the surface of the Earth, but it's outside of your visual perception. And that doesn't mean it's in some other dimension. It's still in the same dimension as the planet Earth, but it carries information in a different way about these distant reaches of the universe. And so there may be a universe we can see currently, in fact, I explain why in my book, we can see out basically uh, 45 billion light years in any direction that we look. And and so there could be something that's at 46 billion light years away from us, or even 45 billion light years plus one light year away from us. And we won't know about that until 2020. And uh, that's what's so fascinating in a sense, because we are, we are uh, sort of time travelers via the, the fact that light takes a finite amount of time to travel a given distance, even though it's the fastest possible speed limit known to exist, mm-hmm. it still has a finite, limited range throughout the universe. So we learn stuff literally every year. We learn more than we learned the previous year. And that's the type of phenomenon that we could potentially detect with instruments like the Simons Observatory, or not. And that would be even more exciting. Let's, uh, I, want, I do want to grab one listener call here. This is Mark from Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, Mark, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, can you hear me okay, JV? You sound good, yes. Okay, great. Um, so I, I may have missed this. Is Dr. Keating, is he up for the Nobel Prize? Is that the deal? No, I was actually, in uh, 2014, I had created an experiment, which for a brief window in time was uh, suggested had made not only one of the greatest discoveries of all time, but if confirmed would be uh, worthy of a Nobel Prize. So the spoiler alert is that we were not confirmed, and therefore I did not win the Nobel Prize. But later that year, I was asked to nominate the winners of the Nobel Prize. Okay, cool. Yeah, I spent a day with a gentleman, Dr. Barry Marshall, who won the Nobel Prize for medicine back in the, I guess, in the late 90s for H. pylori discovery. But real quick, my background is a Ph.D. in pharmacology. Um, I was interested in astronomy and all that stuff as a little kid. Still am, but very peripheral. And here's, here's uh, I have a million questions, but let's talk about the Big Bang that you were talking about a second ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything that I've ever blown up or burned or whatever, you know, turns into ashes. Lord only knows what would happen if it was uh, something on the scale of a Big Bang. I think all the electrons get zinged off the nuclei or something, but everything that I've burned or whatever has stayed as ash, and nothing has ever arisen from it, and, you know, isn't that entropy, isn't that that everything goes to a lower state? I I just don't get how a Mm -hmm. huge explosion could coalesce into something like this. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. Actually, the type of explosion that took place is, of course, not like a chemical explosion, like you're describing that you've done, and uh, instead it's a nuclear explosion. So 
uh, in a sense, the, uh, the, the stakes are a lot higher when you're talking about nuclear fusion. It's not nuclear fission like the Hiroshima bombs, uh, etc. It's instead a fusing of lighter elements, so hydrogen nuclei, protons essentially, into helium nuclei. And that happens, actually, that's happening in the sun right now. In fact, that's how we get the name Helios or helium uh, from the Greek out of the sun. The element helium was discovered not on Earth, it was discovered on the sun. And it's indicative of a, a combustion process, if you will. It's not an oxidation reaction, a chemical reaction. It's the fusion of elements together, which leaves behind a net amount of energy which is incomprehensible and a heat that sustains the sun for over 4 billion years. And so just like that, that process also takes place in the early universe, we believe, and that's what's called Big Bang nucleosynthesis. So it's not an explosion that consumes. It's an explosion that produces. So it's exactly the opposite of what you're saying, but, uh, but it's clear the, in, you know, the intuition is, has to be modified when you're talking about nuclear types of uh, processes. Mark, thanks for that very, very uh, good question. We're just out of time, so I have to let you go uh, so you can't follow up on that. But, um, wow, uh, we're going to need more time with you, Brian. We're going to have to have you back uh, again soon because there's so many things we need to talk about. Very, very quickly, we've heard a lot about uh, receiving some uh, what we would consider to be unusual radio bursts, radio signal bursts. Anything to that? Yeah, there's uh, there's a great deal of interesting new discoveries, serendipitous discoveries, which are the best in some ways, uh, that indicate that there are processes that are occurring faster than we should suspect them to occur, given the physics of, of objects like pulsars and, and, and gamma rays and things like that. So they're really poorly understood, but we're at a very early stage in the understanding and the mapping of these objects, akin to when pulsars were first discovered themselves, they were thought to be alien timepieces ticking away in space. In fact, there are watches called Pulsar after that. And so uh, I caution people to really, you know, overinterpret what they could be ar- arising from, although, you know, it's fun to speculate as well. My guess is that with new technology, new telescopes, like we're proposing, my colleagues are rather proposing in the next decadal uh, process, we will know a tremendous amount more when we have this conversation in the coming years. Your website is your name, BrianKeating.com. I know there's information about the book and your other work there, but where else can people find your book, Losing the Nobel Prize? Uh, you can find uh, information, obviously, it's on Amazon, et cetera, and you can follow me on Twitter. I'm pretty active there. It's Dr. Dr. Brian Keating on uh, Twitter. Thanks so much for being here, Brian. Thanks. It was a really great conversation. Too short. We'll have you back soon. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Thanks so much. Always a great show when we have two fantastic guests, but you always also get a little bit frustrated because you don't have enough time with either of them. So we're going to have to have both our guests back, Brian Keating, of course, and um, Jim DiEugenio, uh, to talk about the JFK assassination. So much information there we just didn't get to. Thanks for joining me tonight. Of course, I want you to go to YouTube, search for the channel. It's just J.V. Johnson on YouTube. Find it, subscribe to it. There is a live stream of the program there when we go live, plus an archive of about 400 back episodes that you can uh, watch and enjoy. No charge. Just uh, just subscribe to the channel. It's really simple. Again, it's YouTube. Search for J.V. Johnson. It's all right there. Tomorrow night, I didn't mention this in the beginning of the show, we've got Rob Shelsky joining us, paranormal expert, and uh, he'll be talking about time travel intrusion on tomorrow night's program. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll see you tomorrow. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.